Authors Over 50, Writing in Life's Sweetest Third. Authors Over 50's weekly podcast celebrates writers and their journeys to publication. Writing after 50 is a whole story on its own, so let's skip to Life's Sweetest Third and talk with authors about their journey from pen to publish. Welcome, I'm Julia Daly, your host, and I invite you to listen to interviews with writers who've achieved their goal of publishing a book just later in life. We've seen award lists for under 30 or under 40, but I've yet to see lists for those who've achieved a significant milestone of their own, launching a new career and publishing their first book after the age of 50. We will hear about these authors' inspirations, struggles, strategies, and the smell of that first book. These writers' journeys inspire me because I'm one of them. My guest today has been a doctor for over 30 years on the eastern shore of Maryland. He loves to help people be the very best version of themselves, which is why he was inspired to write Highway to Your Happy Place, the Roadmap to Less Stress. Aside from treating patients in his office and at nursing homes, he enjoys karaoke, spending time with his wife, and being on the water. Welcome to Authors Over 50, Dr. Gary Sprouse. Ah, thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Gary, our opening question on Authors Over 50 is always, what took you so long to write your first book? (sighs) This has been a struggle, I will tell you. So I started this process probably 25 years ago because the insights that led to the book happened then. And in my initial attempt, I spent a couple of years trying to get a traditional publisher and that didn't go very well. And I realized now that was probably good that it didn't because I wasn't ready. But over the next 20 some years, I was reading, learning, got some advice from different people. But about three years ago, I said, you know what? okay, it's time to stop messing around. Let's get this book done. So for the last three years, I've been working really diligently to get this book done. And so, but there's still things that get in the way. It's, you know, I'm doing a self-publisher and stuff like, hey, we need to know what font you want for the book. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Like, I don't know, whatever font, right? So my wife, who was a journalism major, she's like, well, you have to understand that there's serif and there's, you know, block serif and there's, and I'm like, oh, okay. So I had to learn about, you know, different kind of fonts. And then there's some illustrations in the book and finding an illustrator that I could work with. That took months. It was, oh, that was, frust- that part was frustrating. Writing the book. That was the easy part of this. So. so you would think Gary, if you made it through medical school, you could, you could handle fonts. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. You would think that. Yeah. I, there's there are parts of me that think medical school is easier because in medical school every day you did was one day less you had to do but writing a book doesn't stop till the book gets out and gets published so it continues there's no, there's no to deadline go on then. and on yes, yes exactly yeah well you have certainly written about a topic that our entire generation as well as those much younger are experiencing stress yes can you, can you talk to us about finding more happiness and less stress Yes, I can. So the insight, here's the, 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 when I tried this like the 20 years ago, what I got was, you know, there's 300 books on how to have less stress. So what makes your book so different? And I'm like, oh, well, here's the difference. 
So most books are written that say, hey, here's your top stresses. You know, you lose your spouse, you lose your job, things like that. And then here's some generic ways to get it better. So, you know, meditate, you know, go to church, whatever. The difference in my book is it says, hey, what makes losing your spouse so stressful? And it turns out there are ingredients to make the thing stressful because some people lose their spouse and they're going ding dong, the witch is dead. So they're not stressed at all. Right. So there's a difference for different people. And what I'm writing about is the ingredients that go into what makes things stressful. And then to go back further from that, here's what I realized is that humans have these incredible skills, but our skills have side effects. So as an example, we can envision the future. So we can talk about, hey, this podcast is going to come out in a couple months and my book's going to come out and we can talk about all those things in the future, but it doesn't really exist. And so we have this amazing skill that's made us incredible, like it's made us a dominant species on the earth. The side effect is that we then have to worry about it. Then I have to go, oh, what if this doesn't go right? What if this happens? And so what I signed is that people spend a fair amount of time in their future and then worrying about it and then having the stresses related to something that never even happens. So the concept of this book is say, hey, look, I understand that there's stresses, but here's why they're so stressful and here's what they are. So when I say to people, Tell me what they go. I worry. This is my favorite line. Somebody will come and say, Dr. Sprouse, I worry that I worry too much. And I go, yeah, then you probably do. Right. And so, and I say, I say to them, like, tell me what worry is. And they get this look on their face, like, oh, got this one. Right. And then they start trying to define it and they go, well, it's, it's, yeah, it's worry. Right. And you're like, yeah, okay. Well, so if that, and they don't come up with something because they know how to use it. They know what it is. They know what it feels like. They can tell you in a sense. But when I, when I say, look, if that's your definition, then how would you change it? Well, then they're stuck because there's no way to change it. Like, so it, like psychologists will say, well, just live for today. And you're like, well, that's, that's a nice thought. And if you just live for today, you wouldn't worry because you wouldn't be looking into the future. But as a human, you can't do that. There's no way. You can't not you can't not have the future. It doesn't work like that. And second off, why would I want to give up my greatest skill just because it has a side effect? So the concept of this book is like, hey, here's our skills. Here's the side effects. Keep the skills, lose the side effect. So that's what the whole premise of this book's about. I love that because I'm a person that if you give me the specifics. If you give me a plan, I can work the plan. But if you just give me, like you said, generalities about how to feel better, then that's not going to help. So I love that your book has more specifics, ingredients uh, to it. Yeah. Well, here's what I've been finding. The definitions matter. And the definitions that we have in psychological stuff is pretty superficial, right? It's like when people say worry, they go, I don't know. It's, it's, looking in the future and feeling bad and what if and about it. And I'm like, well, but you can't change that. So my definition says, hey, it is this incredible skill that we have of looking in the future. That's number one. Number two, focusing on all the bad things that can happen. And then number three, and this is where the really bad part comes in, is having the emotion of fear now. And it's like when you have that definition, that gives you concrete, okay, that's what it means. Here's something I can do about it. So first off, applaud your skill of looking into the future. Yay. 
Number two is, hey, you have a choice. You can focus on the bad things or you can focus on the good things. So one of the skills I talk about is realistic optimism, where you say, hey, I'm going to focus on the good things that could happen to me. And guess what? That makes me feel. That makes me feel good right now. And then the third part about having the fear reaction, you can look into the future and look at bad things and not be afraid. You can just look at them. And I have a, a tool that I use. It's called a worry sheet. And it gives you a way to organize what you're thinking about in a way that gives you to-do list and ways to make it less fearful. Well, I hope that you are ready for the onslaught of being able to take your platform out to the to the world because this book is going to serve as a calling card and you're going to have people wanting you to come and speak and and uh, do a lot you know, around the book. So you've really got a platform there of less stress, more happiness. Yeah, that's, you know, this is what I found. It's like, if you're a human and you have a mind, you can get something out of this book. Because here's the other thing that I found is that people that are stressed out, the things they don't have, they don't have time, they don't have money, and they don't have focus. So the way this book has been set up, you only need to read one chapter. Like, if you don't have boredom, then don't read that chapter. If you're worried, then read that chapter. If you feel overwhelmed, read that chapter. If your self-esteem is good, don't read that chapter. And what I've seen is like, hey, just like people don't have a time to read a whole book, right? So this book's been set up. Just read one chapter and you'll get something out of it. Um, I had I work with Jack Canfield and he thought the book was awesome. So he was like, Hey, I want to do an endorsement for your book. I was like, what? That's great. So thank you very much. Right. Yeah. You're right there with all those chicken soup people. Yeah, exactly. Right. What was your inspiration for this book? So as a doctor, right. My goal as a doctor has always been to make people feel better. Keep in mind, I didn't say fix them because a lot of doctors get into this mode where I got to fix people. So when they don't get fixed and they come back with the same problem, then the doctor gets frustrated and that leads to burnout. What I, my goal is always to make people feel better. Now that might mean giving them a hug. It might mean helping them deal with hospice and dealing with their cancer and their impending death. It might mean helping get them insurance, might be telling them a joke, right? Any of these things, because if they walk out of my office and they feel better than when they walked in, then I did my job. And I've taken that mantra and applied it to this book, because what I found with my patients is they come in with high blood pressure and diabetes, but then they tell me about all the stresses that they're having. What I see is their stresses are causing a significant amount of their physical problems. And so I had read this article, and what it said was that if, if an internist or a primary care doctor sends a patient or refers a patient to a psychologist, about 75% of the time, the patient doesn't go. And I'm like, what? Like, wait, seriously? And they have different reasons, money, they're, you know, there's some bias against them. But I'm like, well, so I got two choices. I either send people and know that 75% of the time they don't go, or I figured out myself. And what I found was by reading books and learning some stuff and going to some seminars, I got pretty good at this. And here's what I found is that patients are willing to come to their regular doctor for depression because they just say to their family members, hey, I'm just going to see my doc. And they go, okay. And then they come to me and talk about their depression or their anxieties or their stresses or whatever versus then they have to go, oh, I have to go see the psychologist today. Yeah, that doesn't play as well. So it's actually been pretty good. And there's no stigma attached to coming exactly. to your yes, primary doctor. 
That's exactly right. So then now, so when I took that attitude and the, the basis to all this was this tool that I developed called stratospheres. And it's kind of like a Venn diagram where you take the same information that you had, but you put it in a tool and you can get different insights about it. And so stratospheres was the tool that I developed that when I took that and applied the existing information like on the brain, then I was like, oh, look at this. Now you can see where a mind comes out of a neuron, out of brains, right? Because our brain isn't that much different than a chimpanzee, but our mind, what? Like the skills that we have are crazy different. And there's been a, an age-long debate on how do you get a mind out of a brain? Nobody's really had the answer to that. And But then when you use stratospheres, like there it is, it's pretty obvious. So I've used that model to then gain this insight. And when I was looking at the mind, then they start separating out, this is a brain skill, this is a mind skill. That's when I got the insight to say, oh, my gosh, the majority of human stresses are related to our mind skills. And it's like, well, that that means you approach the problem in a different way. So interesting. Our our minds, our brains, being human is just a very interesting. Well, and what I get to see as a doctor, I do a lot of nursing home work. And so. I see a lot of patients who have been losing their mind skills and it's the most frightening thing for a human because that's the thing that separates us from other animals. Like we don't have big claw, we don't have big giant teeth, but we do have an amazing brain, which has led to mind. And when you start losing your mind skills, that's a scary, sad thing. My greatest fear. Yeah. Lo- mine too, losing right? my mind and not knowing my children is my greatest fear. Yeah, I get that. And that you and every other human out there. Well, I think you can certainly inspire uh, writers who say they don't have time to write because you're a full-time physician. I'd like to know your writing routine. Are you a morning person or a night person? How did you get this book written? (laughs) Well, don't talk to my wife because here's what I said to her. Honey, I need the house for a week to myself. So I said, either I'm leaving or you're leaving. <laughs> so she took off a week. We we had been, we, she and I had bought an old hotel and we renovated it and we turned it into a recovery residence for people that have addictions. And so she, there was some extra rooms there. So she stayed there for a week while I was writing the book. And what I found is when you know what it is that you want to write, the writing goes easy. When you don't know what it is that you want to write, then it take, then it's hard. But fortunately, I'd been working on this stuff for 20 years. So I knew exactly what it is that I wanted to write. I knew what the examples were. So then it was just a matter of putting it down on a piece of paper. And so I spent the week writing the book. And and then I took another week to edit it and, you know, send it to, you know. So what I have found is I can't just sit down for an hour and write. Like it has to be, I have to take the day off or I have to take the week off. Because what I found is, you need like 16 hours to do like four hours of work because you're, you know, looking up stuff or you're going to the bathroom or you're eating or you're taking a nap. Like you need a lot of extra time to get the enough time to figure out what it is that you're going to write. But to me, the key was knowing what it is that I wanted to put down on paper. That made it go really fast. Note to listeners, he's been mulling this over and practicing his work for 20 years before he wrote this book in a week. 
<laughs> we yes, have some that's people exactly who right. have written for years and years. <laughs> yes, no, that's exactly right. Yeah, and I, I tell people in the book, like 20 years ago, the book I'd written had about, had a whole like 50 pages on stratospheres and a whole bunch on how your brain worked. And I shared it to my brother and he's like, come on, man, you don't want me to read 50 pages before I even get to how to have less stress? I don't think so. So I put in the book, like, you guys should be thanking my brother because he got rid of that part, right? So, yeah. yeah. We like layman's terms. Yes. Well, well, the other thing that I found is this. So the I will say the other thing that I did, one of the parts that when I got serious was I hired a guy named Steve Harrison, who is sort of a mentor for wannabe authors. And he has like clubs and and a, a meeting for people that want to write. And he has different things like help you how to online course and how to, that's how I got Jack Canfield, right? That kind of stuff. And having his support and having his information really made being an author an easier thing. Cause here's what I've been learning. Like I had to go to medical school to learn how to be a doctor and go to residency and been practiced for 30 plus years. To be an author, yeah, you got to go to school, learn how to be an author. It's not just sitting down and writing. So writing the book is like 25, 30% of the book. Figuring out how to sell your book, that's a whole that's a whole nother ball of wax, right? So well, and they say even the big five are requesting or making sure that their authors um, do most of their own publicity. Absolutely. So have yes. you found any publicity that worked or maybe that didn't work? Well, I'm just getting started on that part. So one of the things that I did was hire a publicist. But what she said is, hey, I don't want to get involved with you until we get the book like it's ready to come out. So <clears throat> uh, so that, so I'm waiting on that. So what I've been doing in the meantime is I'm developing an online course. And I've been doing podcasts like this. And I'm going to write some articles and things like that. So those are all kind of things that are going into getting it set up. Because I think you said this earlier was you need a platform and I want the platform to be ready to, to go so that when the book does come out, it'll be ready to take, to help people. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about the passage that you've brought to share today and then read from it so we can hear your tone and voice in the book. Oh, okay. I will tell you, I went to see a play, uh, King Lear, a Shakespeare play. So my wife and I went and we sat, we were in the audience and the guy who played King Lear comes out. His voice was so resonant. I was like, oh, I could just sit here and listen to your voice. I don't even care what you say, right? I was like, I'm going to go back and find you and have you do my reading so you can do my audio book, right? <laughs> well, that's yeah. what you have to do. You know, you have to I know, listen right? to all these narrators and choose the voice that will be nice in our ear. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. So I just want to read just a simple couple of paragraphs because what I get out of this is, I, and this is what I like about this book. It's a very positive book. It's like, let's celebrate our strengths and then let's figure out how to get rid of the side effects that come along with that, right? So it's like humans are amazing. We have incredible skills. We can envision the future. We can solve problems in our head. We have words. We have tools. We can choose options. We can classify right and wrong and much more. You should take a moment just to appreciate the wonder of our human skills. But there is a problem with our skills. They come with side effects. And for every skill that humans have, there's a side effect or downside. And what I've uncovered is that the majority of our stresses are a result of the side effects of our skill. And they're like, let me repeat that. The majority of our stresses 
come from the side effects to our skills. So that's kind of the concept of the book, right? Yeah. Yeah. That certainly makes sense. Yeah. Was there anything that you edited out of the book that you decide didn't make the cut? Yeah. So there's, there's a, a part of the book that was about guilt and in each chapter, in each chapter, so the, the chapters are worry and guilt and regret and boredom, low self-esteem and feeling overwhelmed. And so one of the things that I did in the beginning is I wrote the, wrote the book and then I had a focus group of some friends and some family members and had, there was about 20 or 30 people. And I'd asked them each to write, read the book. And then we got together and it was a hybrid meeting of people in the room and people on zoom got their feedback. So in the chapter on, re- on the chapter of guilt, the story that started the chapter was about a lady who had had an abortion <clears throat> and from the focus group, what they said was, yeah, abortion is too controversial. Like you don't want people to focus on abortion. You want them to focus on how to have less guilt. And so then I had to take that part out and put something else in its place. That what what they said was they wanted more of me. So what I put in there was a patient that I had when I first started practice, like probably the first year. And um, she came in with some chest pain that we came to the conclusion that was her stomach. And the next day she had a heart attack. And so I had to live with this guilt of, you know, that, and, and the lady, she didn't die, fortunately. So she came back, but she heard her had been damaged. And so she had a, a lot of um, difficulty with heart failure. And so she kept coming back as a patient. And in the book, what I write about is obviously she forgave me because she kept coming back and seeing me. So it was more important for me to forgive myself for that one. So. Did you have to complete any research before you began writing or as you went along? Or did all of this just come out of your own medical experience? So a couple of things. One, yeah, I read a lot of, first, I had a lot of knowledge from being a doctor. But I mean, I probably have five hundred books that I've read and articles and people that I've talked to. So yeah, it's a it's a lot. And what I find is the information can come from anywhere. It can come from TV shows. It can come from books and plays. It can come from articles that I read, because the, I mean, because this problem is pretty ubiquitous. And I've been able. I mean, part maybe it's because of me, but you know, you can pull in. I mean, like I've read examples of something from a TV show. Well, okay, well. They, they're smart too. They have, they have good writers. They know what they're talking about. Uh, but the other thing is a lot of the ideas that I write about are unique. So my definition of worry is not what the standard definition is. One of the things that I look at as a doctor, I've been trained to treat depression. And in the book, what I talk about is I don't think we got it right. Like we tell people they're depressed all the time and I don't think they're depressed. What I found is that 90% of my patients who are depressed, really they're overwhelmed. And so if I give them a medicine, yeah, so they feel a little better, so the stresses aren't looking so bad, but it doesn't make their stresses go away. So they come back six months later and you're still having the same problem. And we've told them that their brain chemistry is messed up. And so they need a medicine to fix their brain chemistry. And I'm like, yeah, no. So like I had an older gentleman that came to my office and he was his wife was developing Alzheimer's. He was having physical problems. He couldn't walk. He was, and he was angry and he was upset and he had, you know, he was losing skills and he didn't know what to do about it. And he didn't know what to call it. So his family brought him into me. And what I said to him was, you're not depressed. He goes, that's what I thought. I didn't think I was depressed. I don't feel sad. 
And I'm like, no, you're overwhelmed. You got too much stuff on your plate. And when I gave him that label, he was way better. I go, look, I can give you some medicine that'll make you feel a little better while you're fixing some of these stresses, while we're dealing with some of these other issues. And then you won't be overwhelmed anymore. And then you won't need this medicine because there's really nothing wrong with your brain. It's that you got too much stuff going on. And that was, he loved that, right? I think that's the problem for most of us these days is we're all overwhelmed and, and we have been labeled as depressed and given a pill yes. when actually we need to work on all of those things that are overwhelming us. That is correct. And we, so, cause here's the thing, like I've been to, you know, I go to medical lectures, right. And I go to ones that say, Hey, we're going to talk about depression. And so of course my hand goes up and I go, so tell me what depression is. And they go, well, we're not quite sure. <laughs> you're like, wow, okay. And I'm like, is it true that all the literally now all the studies that we do to test these medicines that we use for depression are all done in rats? So they take rats and they make them in quotes depressed, and then they give them medicine and then they figure out what it does to their brain. And then they try it in humans and they go, Oh, see, a lot of their symptoms went away. And I go, Well, that's true, because you made them feel better. But then I would say that we're all alcohol deficient. And they're like, What? And I go, well, when I drink alcohol, I, my stresses go away. I feel a lot better. I get up and do karaoke. I'm wailing away, right? So, Gary, do you have any other books in you? Yes. Well, that's the other, the offshoot to this is, so when people are really stressed out, right? They always find something to do. So maybe they're going to church. Maybe they have a, a boyfriend or girlfriend or a friend that they talk to. Or they smoke cigarettes or they drink alcohol or they, you know, so people find things to or they eat donuts, right? That's my go-to is peanut butter and jelly, right? So when your stress reducer starts causing stress, well, now you what I call a stress reducer loop. And so now you get stress, you do your stress reducer, but that causes stress. So now you have to do your stress. Reducer. So here's my example. You go to work and you have a bad day and you come home to the bar and get a drink. You go, you go to a local bar and you get a drink. And you feel better because that alcohol is your stress reducer. But then on the way home, you get a DWI and you're like, ah. so now your stress reducer just caused stress. So then you get home and you're telling your wife, ah, I got a DUI after a bad day at work. I'm going to go get a beer. And your wife's like, what? You just got in trouble because you had a beer. Ah. And so now your wife's yelling at when your stress reducer starts causing stress. Well, now you're, now you're stuck because every time you have stress, you go do your stress reducer. But the stress reducer is causing stress. So now you end up in what I call a stress reducer loop. So what I found is when we talk to patients who have addictions, what we tell them is you have this disease, it's lifelong, there's nothing you can do about it except struggle every day, you're brain damaged, you're genetically effective, you're weak-willed, you're stupid, your personality disorder. What? Who the heck wants to hear that? So what I say to patients is, look, you're normal. You got stress, you found a stress reducer that worked, then it started causing problems and you were smart enough to figure out, hey, I need to stop this. But now you're stuck because your brain does what it's supposed to do and make things automatic. So now you got to get out of that rut. So in my model, I go, hey, you're normal. All we got to do is find a way to have less stress and find new ways to do with stress. And then you have to practice till they become automatic. And then you're normal. And they're like, what? Uh, patients love that, right? So that's the new book. It's going to be called New Outcomes. And I want to change the world from calling people addicts and users and junkies and all these other derogatory terms that we use and say, hey, you know what? You got a stress reducer loop. And here's what I find. Every single person is at risk for getting a stress reducer loop. And anything that people do to reduce their stress can become a loop. So then the stigma goes away because 
maybe you picked Harry, maybe you picked alcohol. I've I, weirdly, I have enough patients that do bleach. Okay. So when they're stressed out, they bleach the crap out of their house. And it's like, and the more stressed out, the more bleach and their family complains and their eyes water and they can't breathe, but they got to keep bleaching. It's the same process. When I, and when I'm tired and I'm stressed out, my car just drives into the local convenience store and buys a donut. And I'm like, wait, how'd I get here? <laughs> it's like, I'm trying to lose weight. That's not right. right? So that's the, that's the other offshoot to this book. Well, I grew up in the South and we celebrated with food for every occasion. Yes, so yes. food, food is my stress reliever. <laughs> yes, that's it. Right? And then, and then further along, there's going to be other books because th this book deals with six stresses and there are already two or three more books that'll have more stresses involved. And maybe, hopefully, depending on how well this goes, there might be a, a stress book for kids and a stress book for teenagers and a stress book at work and for old people, right? That kind of stuff. So that's my goals. It's so needed, especially for the children and the teenagers these days. And it sounds like you have so much common sense, not just book sense. Mm, that, yeah, I do try to. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in a blue collar family. And so it's like, yeah, I think I think that's one of the things that's made me different as a doctor is that I can relate to my patients in a lot of different ways. So the, the hard part that I've had though, as a doctor, you do one-on-one -on -one visits. Like I'm, like I'm talking to you one-on-one. -on -one. I can see if you're not in your head and you're getting it in a book. You don't get that. That that's been a struggle for me because then a, in a one-on-one -on -one setting, I can see when you're not getting it and I can tell a different story or say it a different way in a book. You just have to kind of write it out and, hope people understand what you're saying. So, well, you'll hear from the readers. And I think that's the most rewarding part of this journey is you'll hear from people who reach out to you and tell you what a difference you've made in their lives. And then you get that response that you normally get directly from your patients. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I will I say there's a, one course I took on was basically asking you why are you doing this and being impactful became the real main reason, right? Money was, you know, it's not the issue. It's being impactful. So well, doctor, as always, our very last interview question is our writers over 50 are a unique group. Do you have advice for writers 50 and above? Well, first off, yeah, I, I talk to a lot of people who go, oh, I, I have a book inside of me. And I'm like, you have to you have to actually sit down and make a plan on how to do it. Start with an outline. Start with writing one word. Just get started. I would. Here's what I found is getting involved in a group like the group that I was in with Stephen Harrison and wannabe authors and being around other wannabe authors helps make you motivated, but it also gives you some of the tools that you need to be an author because there's definitely things that I learned. Like I didn't have to go back to college to learn how to be an author, but I basically had to go back to school. So think of yourself as a student and that you're learning a new skill. And one of the books that I had read said, look, in the, most people's lifetime, there are five or six different things. So I, so for me, like being an author is like a different thing. So I had to learn how to be an author and I went to school to learn how to be a medical school and a doctor. So I had to go to school. It was a different kind of school. So it was like, you know, doing podcasts and learning and going on reading books and stuff, but the same concept. And I would say, if you have a book inside of you, find a coach or a mentor but think of yourself as a student and learn how to be an author and it will come because they'll give you some of the skills that you need to do it. That's wise advice. And I, I always tell our, 
our writers that they can at least keep journals. And I think just writing down something every day is going to keep our minds sharper as we move into old age. So we're just excited that you're here with us today, that you've written something that's going to be significant to others. And we're happy to count you now among our authors over 50. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us today. Please look for Authors Over 50 every Thursday when we will have conversations with accomplished debut novelists over the age of 50. Please subscribe and share with a friend. And check out my own publication journey after 50 at www.juliadaily, that's D-A-I-L-Y, like dailynewspaper.com. Until next time, keep reading and writing. And remember, it's never too late to fulfill a dream in life's sweetest third.